Okay, y'all, we are done with our mini-series on sin. Can you believe it? It all started a couple weeks ago with Mark 7 when Jesus told us that our problem is not an outside-in problem, but an inside-out problem. So we went and discovered a a mini-series on sin. Uh, To be honest, I'm pretty relieved. (laughs) How about you? Are you relieved? Slim and I were talking about my relief last Sunday after the service, and I was saying, yeah, just kind of the, the weight of preparing about a focused attention on sin and communicating it for a couple of weeks now was, you know, it's kind of a little oppressive. So I'm really, really excited to get to Mark. And he looked at me and said, yeah, because Jesus never talks about sin. <laughs> and then I always remembered, why do we hire him? All right, Andrew Delbacco is a humanities professor at Columbia University, and a while back he did a study on Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, And in that study, he started attending some meetings in the lower Manhattan area. And he said, in walked, uh, one guy was telling a story, and he said, quote, was a crisply dressed young man, and he was talking about his problems, but he was doing so uh, in a a way that he was completely faultless. Um, All his mistakes were because of others, the injustice, the betrayal of others, and he went on to tell of all the ways he was going to get back at them. Delbaco wrote, his every gesture gave the impression of grievously wounded pride. And while he was speaking, though, there was a man in his 40s, a black man with dreadlocks, and the man leaned over to Delbaco and said, yeah, I used to feel that way too before I achieved low self-esteem. Now, Delbaco went on to write a book about this, and he went on to say, this was more than a good line for me. It was the moment that I understood in a new way the religion I claimed to know something about. As the speaker bombarded us with phrases like, got to take control of my life, and I've got to really put myself first and believe in myself, the man beside me took refuge in the old Calvinist doctrine that pride is the enemy of hope. What he meant by his joke about self-esteem was that he learned that no one can save himself by the dint of his own efforts. He thought the speaker was still lost, lost in himself, but without knowing it. So why is the Bible so intentional and so thorough and so convincing and so uh, overwhelmingly communicate on all of its pages that were sinful? Why? Because pride is the enemy of hope. You know that the most courageous and the most hopeful and the most comforted, the most loving, the most daring, uh, the most engaged, the strongest, the most authentic people on the planet are those who know they're sinners in very real, personal, and functional daily ways. And then those that are most uncomforted and those that are weakest and most miserable and unloving and inauthentic and not happy and disengaged from life are those that don't know they're sinners in a real practical way. So contrary to popular belief today in the church and outside the church, uh, and even in our own hearts, when we hear regularly about being sinful, it's actually good news. It drives us out of ourselves, out of our self-reliance, out of our strategies to try to save ourselves, and drives us to Jesus, the only one who can. Full of grace, full of joy, full of hope, full of courage, full of real control and power in our life, right? So I want to welcome us back to Mark. 
and welcome us uh, to a place where Jesus is still going to talk about sin. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said, sorry, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and had laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not enter the village. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would shine on the page, uh, that you would actualize the things we are talking about now, that it would be a divine event. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we have a second miracle here, don't we? Now, the first one was at the end of chapter 6, and the first feeding was to religious Jews, and this feeding is to irreligious Gentiles. So on two sides of the Sea of Galilee, we have two accounts. And the point here is pretty clear. If you look in verse 4, you'll see the question from the disciples. Uh, The literal translation goes like this. Who can satisfy these people in this wilderness with bread? There's the point. Then the event happens, and the answer is only Jesus can. Only Jesus can satisfy the deeper hunger in the human soul. Look at verse 8. And they ate and were satisfied. Now, some of you know that I spent some time in Almaty in Kazakhstan, and you know that I was doing campus ministry there. And one day I was invited uh, to speak at Kazgu University and to talk about the Bible. 
Uh, Roman and I were translating, or he was translating, I was speaking, and we gave a 15-minute presentation and then took some questions from a class of about 100 students. Well, at the end, asking the questions, I said, anybody have any questions? And there was dead silence. It's like all the students immediately looked down, their eyes went dropped to their desk like they were watching TV on their desk, except for one man. And he just started asking questions. And he asked more questions. And then the teacher, whom I haven't even had a conversation with, wouldn't even look at me. I thought it was more of a cultural thing. She just raised her voice and started addressing him. And he addressed her right back. I mean, it was a clear confrontation. It didn't matter what culture you were in. I was like, oh, this is interesting. Right? I knew they weren't exchanging borscht recipes or shish kebab recipes. There was something going on here. So I turned to Roman and I go, Roman, what's going on here? And he goes, and his eyes were as big as saucers and sweat started beating on his brow. And he said, she just said, what are you a Muslim man doing asking these people about Jesus? I said, okay, what did he say? And he said, I may be a Muslim man, but my heart is empty. I want to hear what they have to say about Jesus. Right? Now, if this would have happened several years ago, the first two words that would have popped in my head would have been Siberia and Gulag. But because we're living in a different age now, the first thing that popped in my head was Augustine's famous word, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. Right? Well, this is the point. We all have a deep hunger in our soul. A deep hunger beyond a five-star meal, beyond a love relationship, beyond trying to achieve personal greatness. A deep hunger that Jesus can only satisfy, right? So this point is pretty easy to see in the two miracle feedings, isn't it? Only Jesus can satisfy the deeper hunger of your soul. He's the bread of life, the text is saying. There's actual connections made between the manna story in the Old Testament. And manna was kind of like this. It wasn't Real food, it was kind of heavenly food. It was God food. It might have been the real true soul food. It was really good food. And in those accounts, this is parallel as going back to those accounts. Connections are being made that only Jesus satisfies the deeper hunger in the soul. And I think all of us can connect to that on one level, can't we? I mean, even if we've gone to church once or too many times to count, we can connect with it. We can get it even if we don't possess it. The idea kind of rings at some level to be true. So the question is, why, why do we not see that actualized more in our life? Why do we not personally experience the reality that Jesus satisfies the deep hunger in our soul on a growing, ongoing basis? Why is that? Well, according to Mark, there are two reasons And that's what the rest of the chapter starts unpacking. Right after the second miracle feeding, Mark gives two examples of personally disconnecting with Jesus after he has made himself known. That there's a distance between Jesus. There's not a personal experience of him, even in the midst of him actually revealing himself to people. Why is that? Well, the first disconnect we expect, you see it, verses 11 through 13, it's in the lives of the religious leaders. There's nothing new here. This is the same old stuff. We get what's going on here. Uh, It's just more elevated. Do you see the word come out? He came out. They came out. That's a Roman military word. It's used for armies when they come out in rank to face an enemy. 
So the picture here is the religious leaders are coming out like an army to face Jesus. Why the hostility? Well, the answer is found in the word seeking. Remember, by now we've got this word down. We've seen it so many times. Every time Mark uses the word seeking, it's with people trying to control Jesus. So we have people who are trying to control their lives, and what they've done is they've added Jesus to their list of control. And this dynamic creates opposition. It creates tension. Why? Because we cannot control our lives and trust Jesus at the same time. It can't happen. They're different. They're opposed. They're different trusts, different hopes, different saviors. So Jesus' response to those who are trying to control their lives, look at that in verse 12. He sighs deeply in his spirit. This is not anger and it's not frustration. Do you know what it is? It's deep sadness. One commentator says it's it's despair. Jesus is despairing of their failed attempts to try to take his place, right? So the first reason for personal disconnect with Jesus is that we try to control our lives. In trying to control our lives, we're disconnecting, we're disengaging, we're distancing ourselves from personally experiencing the reality that he alone can satisfy the deep hunger in our soul. And then we usually, from the Pharisees, what we get now is that then we try to control God. Okay? So what's the second disconnect? Well, the second one we don't expect. Look at verses 14 through 21. This is the disciples. Now, at this point, the disciples have seen two feeding miracles. They have seen boatloads of bread passed before their eyes. They've seen more food consumed in two hours than six months down at the Golden Corral. All-you-can-eat buffet, which I love, right? They've seen boatloads of fish come by them. They've seen scraps at the end of these two miracles that were more bountiful than the portions that began the miracle in the first place when Jesus says, what do we have? Okay, go feed them. They've seen this. And then now, fresh off the second feeding, they're in the boat. And what do they do once they get in the boat? Do you see what the text says? They crave bread. And there probably is a junior disciple. And I guarantee you they are blaming that junior disciple for not bringing the bread. On the boat, they're complaining. They're angry. They're bickering about it. So many scholars are surprised at this. The disciples have this incredible bread amnesia that they just say, this can't be a second account. It's got to be a retelling of the first account. In other words, there's not two events. There's one event and there's a retelling of it because no one could be this thick. No one could be this disengaged and this disconnected when something so magnificent has happened twice right before your very eyes. How are they not connecting deeply with Jesus at this point is what the scholars are saying. Now, this view is a huge stretch if you do this um, because it doesn't put Mark in a positive light and it doesn't treat him as a competent writer, literarily uh, or um, historically. So if we give Mark the benefit of the doubt, what's going on with the disciples? Why does Jesus unload seven questions about their lack of understanding? What's happening here? Why are they so spiritually disconnected? Do you see the answer? Look at verse 12. 
And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And the next thing they know, they're saying, where's the bread? The reason is the disciples have the same leaven of the Pharisees and Herod in their own hearts. So what's the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod? What is that? We could say it this way. What do two groups that have nothing in common have in common? What do two groups that even despise each other have in common? If we were trying to use kind of today's atmosphere, we could say, what do liberals and conservatives have in common? What do militant pro-lifers and Planned Parenthood have in common? Both the Pharisees and Herod, which is probably shorthand for Herodians, in other words, his groupies, right? Here's what they both have in common. They both avoid Jesus. They both oppose Jesus. They both avoid a Jesus salvation, a grace salvation, a merciful salvation. They oppose and avoid Jesus. They avoid an uncontrolled salvation, an unmerited, unworked for, unachieved salvation. That's what they're about, right? Now, the fruit might be different because the Pharisees really want to be good and the, and the Herodians enjoy being bad. But the root's the same. They're avoiding Jesus. So the second reason for personal disconnect with Jesus is what? Avoiding him. Avoiding the salvation of grace and unmerit and unearned realities. Instead, for wanting merited, performed, achieved salvation. In other words, avoiding the bread of life by trying to satisfy your own hunger. All right, so how do we personally connect with Jesus? How does this happen? How do we uh, engage with the bread of life in a way in which we actually have the deep hunger in our soul progressively satisfied? How does that happen? Well, here's the answer. The most striking difference between the feeding events, the first one and the second, is the view of the camera. Do you see that? In the first feeding event, the camera's on Mark, and he's got the camera, and he's at the microphone, and he's the eyewitness, and he's telling the story about what's happened. Third person. In the second feeding, the camera is not on Mark. The camera's on Jesus, and it's live. And he's looking right into the camera and Jesus is speaking into the camera. So what we get is a shift from the third person to the first person. In other words, the first feeding was about Jesus. The second feeding is from Jesus. The second feeding is Jesus looking into the camera, into the crowd, and by extension, the Gentile Roman Christians, and by extension, you and me. And he looks into the camera and he says, I have compassion for you. first account, Mark said, Jesus had compassion. This account, Jesus says, I have compassion for you. Now, most folks, when we get to that, which I think is a good thing to do, we start zeroing in on what the word compassion means, which means a deep emotional uh, connection in the core of his being for someone else. The emphasis is on how deeply he feels about them. That's good. But there is another more wonderful, deeper, 
beauty to the word compassion. You know what it is? Identification. If I have compassion on you, it means that your pain is in my heart. I have so identified with your misery and your confusion and your desperation and your hurt and your pain that it is in me. When Jesus has compassion, he is identifying your pain and your hunger and your confusion in him. So your need is in his heart. Your soul hunger, your discontent, your emptiness is in his heart. Your pain, it's in his heart. So Jesus has compassion on you, which means he takes you into his heart. He is so identified with you that way. Now Mark's first picture reveals Jesus' deep identification with us. The second picture goes even deeper. So Mark has given us two pictures on how to deeply connect, personally experience the reality that Jesus is the bread of life and he satisfies the deep hunger of the heart. Two incredible pictures. The first is identifying compassion. The second is, it goes with the blind man at Bethsaida. Let's look at this. Notice that the people bring the blind man to Jesus. Do you see that? The people beg Jesus to touch him. The blind man does nothing but be blind here. There's no indication that he wanted to go to Jesus. There's no indication that he seeks Jesus. There's no indication that he asked Jesus to heal his sight. There's no indication that he cries out for mercy. There's no indication that he responds and initiates with Jesus in any way. All he's doing in this passage is being blind. Notice how personal this gets for Jesus. What does Jesus do? It says Jesus takes him by the hand. Then notice what he does. Leads him out of the village. And then notice what he does. He spits in his eyes. Nobody does that. I mean, the Greek miracle workers wouldn't even touch their clients. They had no contact with their clients. Jesus spits in his eyes. I mean, this is TMI. This is too much information, right? This is too close. This is too personal. This is too messy. This is too identifying with someone, spitting in their eye. Nobody does that. Unless you're on the front row, right? Notice what we should expect here when this happens. We expect an authoritative word of healing here. In every instance that Jesus has healed somebody, so far in Mark, he says, Be opened! See! Little girl, rise from the dead. Be clean! You know what we get here? What do you see? Do you see anything? Did it work? Some folks are so shocked by what Jesus does here, they say, see, it didn't take the first time. It's a two-step healing regime. Spit, and then something else. Look at verses 23 through 25. These are three verses, okay? In these three verses, the word seen is used nine times. 
with eight different Greek words. The point is obvious. It's about seeing Jesus. It's about seeing who he is, and when you see who he is, you connect with him. When you see who he is, you personally experience him. When you see who he is and he shows up, you connect and change on the spot. The only way to personally connect with Jesus is by the compassionate touch of Jesus. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. This is what we need. You know, what do we need? What do you need? What do you need in your marriage? What do you need in your relationships? What do you need today? What do you need tomorrow? What do you need yesterday? What does everyone need at any moment, at any time in their life? A compassionate touch of Jesus. When we see his compassion, remember it's an identifying compassion. And so when we fast forward a little bit in in Mark's story, we begin to see that his compassion so identifies with us that he actually takes our spiritual blindness and makes it his own. He takes sin's penalty on us, our sin penalty, our sin's power and control over us, and he makes it his own so we can see and be satisfied so we can be forgiven and that satisfaction so that we can be out from under the power and the slavery of sin and that's real bread of life stuff. When we see this, we will personally connect with Jesus. When we see that it's compassionate, but it's a compassionate touch. In other words, did you see what is touch? All you and I bring to Jesus is being blind. And he graciously, mercifully, in an unearned way, in an unmerited way, in an unperformed way, in an unachieved way, takes you by the hand leads you personally by himself outside the village, spits in your eyes, and touches you and heals you. Now when we see this, we will personally connect with Jesus in a way that the deep hunger of your soul is satisfied. Now I want you to see how this this comes together, because here's the, the main idea. This is what the disciples needed. They needed a compassionate touch from Jesus. And the placement of the story is right after the disciples' blindness. So the connection between the disciples' blindness and Jesus healing a blind man is is intentional. And so is the missing words of power that says, see, be open, be healed. Instead, it's like, do you see anything? Do you see yet? That's the exact same question that Jesus asked the disciples on the boat after they asked for bread. He said, verse 17, do you see anything? (laughs) Do you understand what I'm doing? Do you understand who I am? The point is not just that they need the compassionate touch of Jesus. What Mark's trying to communicate is that they eventually will get it. Because in another verse, we're going to have Peter's colossal confession of seeing Jesus. 
And then all of a sudden, the great divide has happened in the book of Mark. That which comes before that confession, that which comes after that confession, that this colossal confession that Jesus is the Christ, the colossal reality that Jesus has compassionately touched the disciples, now they see is the high watermark so far in the book. And then the next one will come from a Gentile commander, soldier. The point is that you and I can know that this word is here for us to let you and I know that he is committed to you seeing. To encourage us all that he compassionately will touch you. And you will personally connect with him. And you will personally experience the bread of life. Amen.